Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Too Much Soul with your girl Cindy. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest, Isaac, with us. And very interesting how we met. We actually met through a panel discussion. So it was interesting because I felt like we kind of had our own connection and we're having our own dialogue. And afterwards, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so Team Isaac. you got to be on my podcast. So everyone, welcome Isaac Etter to Too Much Soul. Hi, Isaac. Hey, how you doing? (laughs) So grateful to be here. Yes. I know. I'm glad we were on that panel together. So glad. I know. I was like, I feel like like, there are other people on the panel, but I'm just like having this, you know, connection with Isaac, like. I just loved everything you were saying and your perspective and really wanted you to be able to kind of share that with my audience today. So excited to kind of introduce everyone to you. So if you could just let everyone know a little bit about yourself and your transracial adoption experience. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm Isaac Etter. I'm a transracial adoptee. Um, I was adopted when I was two. And about uh, two years ago now, I started a consulting firm, Edder Consulting, really to do racial bias and anti-racism work within the adoption sector. Started with just families and quickly grew to working with more adoption agencies and social workers. And the whole mission of it really is to help prepare families to transracially adopt before they get the children. My goal is to kind of be on the front end so that children are going into safe and inclusive homes, not the family is adopting and then realizing, oh, there's a difference between black and white people and culture. Um, (laughs) And so we're catching it on the front end so that people aren't having um, what is many times a traumatic experience as a teenager and an adult um, in a transracial uh, adoptive home. Mm, That's awesome. So how does it, so you just mentioned that you help to prepare the families Mm -hmm. to accept children into an educated and inclusive home. What does that look like? So for Edda Consulting, um, I developed, you know, and honestly, I developed an experience. I'm not, I can't even lie and say that I I went in with this intention. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, an adoption agency that I was adopted through Bethany Christian sponsored an adoption event that I did. And then they asked me to come and just volunteer and tell my story. And as I was telling my story more and more, I realized that families were just getting so much out of it and that the Q&A would last like an hour. You know, so I was giving this presentation. Families were talking for so long. Um, The nonprofit I was working at had started, had just failed. And so I was kind of down and I was like, all right, how am I going to bounce back from this? And so I began building a personal website for myself. I was like, okay, what if I just brand myself? You know, I've done a bunch of activacy work. I've worked in inner city uh, communities in Atlanta. Like, I think there could be a way for me to just brand myself as like a speaker. Um, But as I got to the end of building my website, I was like, man, this website, it needs to offer something. It's just Mm -hmm. like, okay, here's Isaac, but what could it offer? And that's Mm -hmm. when I had the idea. I was like, what about me just making this thing that I'm doing at Bethany Christian Services? What if I made it like an actual service? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where the idea for it came. And as I continued to do it, I noticed that three things were happening. One, people were feeling educated. Okay. Two, people were wrestling with these concepts of race. 
And I was like, and then the third one was they were they were asking how to implement it. And so mm-hmm. those became like the three pillars of Enter Consulting. We educate, we wrestle, and we implement. And I think that those three go hand in hand because without the knowledge, you can't do anything. So a mm-hmm. lot of white families just need to understand what racism in America looks like. They need to understand racial bias, and bias, implicit bias. They need to actually get an understanding of these terms and, and, and what they mean if they've never spent time in black communities. If they've never spent time outside of white culture they might only see these terms as like these liberal leftist, you know, ex, you know, extreme terms that aren't real. So mm-hmm. I contextualize them for families and be like, okay, this is how it's happened in my own life. And so we're educating, we're talking about these things and then we wrestle with it together. So that's really done through like the Q and A. And as we talk about my experience, learning about racism, you know, anything that we come to embrace as a belief we have to wrestle with it up and down. We have to like think through it. Why do we believe this? And so mm-hmm. I try to create an environment for families to ask really hard questions about race. Because if they've grown up in homes and communities that are constantly reinforcing that racism isn't real, that it's a thing Black people have made up, that they need to have space to actually wrestle with, oh, so this isn't something that's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, And so then we talk about implementing and implementing is saying, okay, how do we take all this knowledge that we learned today and apply it into your everyday life? So what in your community, what in your surrounding area can you go to that will give you some kind of sense of cultural competence? What about African-American festival, Puerto Rican festival? Is there a CASA? Is there an African-American society? Are there Black Lives Matter chapters? What things in your community could, could events could you go to to be surrounded by people that don't look like you, but do look like the child that you're going to have so you can get a comfortability in a setting that's not what you're used to? Because ultimately, even if you get a good understanding, practice is where things become real. And so I don't want people to walk away from my talks with all this head knowledge that they don't ever practice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying, I always urge parents to go, all right, now that, now that we've understood this, we've had this wrestling, we've talked to you, have asked hard questions, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to go sit in the back of, of an event around social issues that's probably happening in your town or a town over. It's time for you to go to a cultural festival. It's time for you to go volunteer, um, maybe somewhere in an inner city environment. It's time for you to see that these are just people. And, and humanize mm-hmm. this because you're never going to really be able to understand and embrace your child's culture if you look at people that look like them as other and different. So you mentioned asking that you challenge them to ask the hard questions yeah, about absolutely. race. So what are some examples of that? Uh, I mean, it goes anywhere from like, what do I do if I know my church doesn't support you know, any of this stuff, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, or just like anti-racism, like if I go to a church that doesn't embrace mm-hmm. any of this, you know, people ask like, mm-hmm. you know, should I take my children there? And then people ask like really crazy questions too. Like one person asked me, <laughs> um, if I raise my son on a farm, will he feel Black? Um, people asked me, uh, was a do-rag a, a gang thing? They said that they heard that do-rags were connected to gangs. And so, they, they were wondering, you know, how do they, should they feel safe around people with do-rags? Like, just very interesting, mm. outward, outlandish kind of questions 
Um, but I think, but not, but uh, I would say yes and no, only because when I hear you say it or, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what they're asking you to me, it just sounds like they don't have the exposure. And so it's just like, you know, ignorance is bliss. Like when you don't have that exposure and you don't really know, then you kind of have that entitled or privilege of, of really just not knowing and not being aware so yeah I mean I would probably incur like no question is really Mm -hmm. you know too crazy or too dumb because people just they don't I mean you would think that they would know Mm -hmm. but they have no idea so and that's the whole purpose of the wrestle like what I call the wrestle section is like the crazy Mm -hmm. questions are, are are very useful to the overall goal um, and like mm-hmm. hard questions are, are they're useful to the overall goal, which is to actually understand these issues. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most powerful things about the work I do is the Q and A portion where I just create mm-hmm. a setting for people to ask really vulnerable questions. You know, people, yeah. people really do. They, they ask, you know, very personal questions, you know, mm-hmm. they, they might have children in their home and they'll be like, well, you know, our child told us that live in our home because we were white and because of what they've heard about white people and they want to wow. know how to deal with that and, and mm-hmm. so you know I, I one thing that I really do love about my work and I think one thing that I, I think that if I were to do nothing else throughout our consulting would be the most important thing is that vulnerable setting is that mm-hmm. I try to open myself up in the front end with my story and being honest about the things that I've been through so that the crowd is also vulnerable when they when I open up for them to share as well. Um, yeah, I think in the environment that we're kind of in now, mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of translates over into the Black Lives Matter and, and a lot of the things that we're seeing and a lot of the conversations that people are having. And it it's just amazing to hear the people that they don't know what to say nope. or to ask, but I do think that we just as human beings have to set that atmosphere for people to feel vulnerable and safe to ask questions without feeling that judgment because they just really don't know, which, you know, a little bit of that is like, okay, well, you know, you shouldn't just expect for people to just hand over answers to you. Like a little bit of that has to be, or a big part of that Mm -hmm. has to be you finding out and educating yourself but also, you know, like kudos yeah. for asking those questions, no matter how awkward or weird or whatever it may feel like to ask them. I think that's the only way that people are going to know. Absolutely. I mean, we we do our best through vulnerability. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, no matter how far back you go and study um, racial justice, one of the biggest proponents of, of change work happenings, happening is people being able to understand people. You know, mm. people who can sit yeah. in rooms together and be vulnerable from both sides mm-hmm. and work towards goals. That is ultimately how so much change gets done. And it wasn't mm-hmm. always like that. Obviously, we had, you know, terribly race, a terribly racist America but over the last, like, I think 20 years, especially, it's been so crazy to see how much vulnerability can move mountains. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So in regards to helping them understand racial and implicit bias, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? Because that's pretty heavy. Yeah, absolutely. On so many different levels, because one, either they may not want to recognize that they do have it, Mm -hmm. or two, they just aren't aware. Absolutely. So usually for those things, I, I use my actual story. So I talk about, you know, my upbringing. I talk about my family. I talk about, um, you know, the fact that growing up, my family never said anything bad about black, black people. I didn't grow mm-hmm. up in a home where they, like, looked at black people, looked down on them, nothing. But they were never around. Mm-hmm. I never, you know, I remember one time there was a black guy that came to my family's church who was a pastor from another church, yeah, I think from a couple hours away, who was there to do like a Sunday school. And it wasn't even about race. It was just a Sunday school lesson. And that's mm-hmm. like, and that memory is so distinct in my head because it's one of the only memories that I have of seeing a black adult before I was 17. Um, wow. that, that wasn't also adopted. So I had black yeah. friends, but they were also adopted. So we were all living in the same, in the same shell. So we, we really yeah, like we were all living in the same world. We were all living in this world where we just like we didn't know other black people. We were each other's black friends. And so Wow. And so, you know, that environment, when I went out into the world, and any any experience that I had, like after I had got my license with black people, was full of such awkwardness that mm-hmm. I was saying, I always tell parents, it's really not about you not saying anything bad about black people it's it's the fact that they're not around that you don't make any Mm. effort that there's nothing happening there's no exposure you're sending Mm -hmm. you're sending a message to your children through that and it also says Mm. a lot about how you think about those people Mm. you know what i mean because here's Mm -hmm. the thing if i if i enjoy somebody or if i want to be a part of something i make an effort for you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was very evident that it was avoidance. And it might have not been mm. known to my parents, but my parents mm-hmm. didn't want to surround themselves with people of color because probably because of their upbringing as well. But mm-hmm. that's a form of bias. That's a big yeah. form of implicit bias where we think just because they're not in our immediate circle, but because we don't say anything bad about them, we don't dislike them. That's mm-hmm. not true. We all can create circles that are diverse. If we choose mm-hmm. to find circles that have no people of color in communities that have like an abundance of people of color, that's very intentional. Mm-hmm. And even if we're doing it subconsciously, it's still intentional. I remember mm-hmm. the only time that I heard my dad speak negatively of a black person was Obama. And I remember how much that rung out to me. Because mm-hmm. that's the only, that's the, other than that pastor that I talk about, that's the only other black person that I saw really on, and especially the only like black celebrity that I really saw on TV. And so the one black person that I could look up to, to have my parents talk badly about, that also laid like a very, you know, it sent a very clear message. Because even though mm-hmm. I don't think my parents, it had anything to do with race, it, it was mm-hmm. because he was a Democrat how I was seeing it as a black person was that's the only black politician that's made it to this level. And you're talking so bad about him. I'm seeing it as a black thing. Yeah. And so, so yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, like, when did you realize that you were different and that like when situations 
like that kind of occurred, mm-hmm. it, it sent those messages to you. Yeah. So the first time I felt like I was, I was different. Um, I was coming home from youth group one night. I was probably like 13 or 14 and I ran up the stairs and I, and I go into the bathroom to brush my teeth and I look in the mirror and I, and I got shocked. I got shocked because I saw mm. a black person in the mirror. It had been like, mm. it had been like, I forgot that I was black. Um, mm. You know, there was really nobody around me that looked like me. Um, mm-hmm. And I looked into the mirror and, and, and there was like a, such a moment of sadness because I didn't look like everybody else. And that was the, that was one of the biggest moments that like, I, I can't get out of my head knowing yeah. that I was different. And what was the second part of that question? Sorry. Well, no, it was just when you realized that and yeah. then, because that made you eventually kind of connect that to mm-hmm. when you saw the black pastor absolutely, and when they would make comments about Obama. So you're yeah. equating that to like, especially the comments about Obama, like, well, he's black. So yeah. if that's how you feel about, about black people. Then how do you potentially feel about me? Absolutely. And so it'll, you know, make you question that in, in your identity with that. So yeah, I, I totally get that. Or at what age did you kind of get to the point where you went into discovery of trying to figure out what it meant to be black. Yeah. So it, it really wasn't intentional. It was actually accidental, but I was on Tumblr the summer before my senior year of high school. Um, okay, Tumblr. Yeah, exactly. That, uh, <laughs> I'm not very old, but that always makes me feel like I'm showing my age. You know what I mean? Cause no, you're still a baby. I know exactly. I'm still a baby, but there's nobody who's like 18 or 19 that knows what Tumblr is. On Tumblr, <laughs> that really that really died out after like 2017. Um, so um, yeah, so I was on uh, I was on Tumblr, and I uh, came across this hashtag Blackout Day, you know, and um, I clicked on it um, just mm-hmm. to kind of see what was going on, and it. Was, mm-hmm. It was um, it was something that colleges were doing to signify support of Black Lives Matter and in solidarity oh, wow. with um, okay. people who had died. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how popular this trend was. So mm. not a lot of people seem to know about it. So it must have not been crazy popular. But it yeah. came across my feed nonetheless. Um, and as I was scrolling through the hashtag, it was also just like police brutality videos. This person got murdered. That person got murdered. Um, I remember wow. videos of like police raiding uh, low-income homes, and it was like a very big shocker moment for me. It was like, "Whoa, what did I just stumble stumble into?" Um, <laughs> You're like, "Wait a minute, yeah. Tumblr." <laughs> exactly. I was like, I was literally like, "Okay, I I didn't know that this was happening." And and obviously, mm-hmm. once you start down that rabbit hole, you know, of course, it's going to get into like the white black tension. And so now mm. I'm reading things about how black people feel about white people. And I'm thinking to myself, I got a family full of white people right upstairs. And I'm reading all this stuff about, you know, white people are racist. You know, white people have disenfranchised black people. And, and, I, and I'm honestly sitting there with these flashbacks of, you know, the Obama comments and any, any other moment that I felt different. Mm-hmm. Being like, is, mm-hmm. my, is my family upstairs racist? Not, wow. you know what I mean? That That's the situation yeah. I was put in. 
And and this whole year, I didn't really, like, I didn't have an outlet for it. Like, my adopted friends, it really wasn't on their mind. Like, that Mm -hmm. wasn't the safe outlet. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, did you guys have conversations about stuff? But it sounds like they were kind of living in in the same bubble, in a sense. Yeah, same bubble. So they weren't really concerned about having that conversation. I was kind of just, and I, you know, all my best friends were white at this point. So mm-hmm. I obviously wasn't interested in having this conversation with them. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, I need a minute. Give me a minute. Exactly. So it felt, <laughs> it felt like this big secret that I knew. Like it literally mm. felt like this secret that I knew that they didn't think that I knew. And mm. so you know, the senior year goes by, I graduate. That's what you call uh, your woke moment. Yeah. Well, I'll get, I'm about to get to my woke moment. Here's, oh, here's, oh, here's oh, the big woke okay. moment. Here's the big one. <laughs> so the whole year goes by. Um, mm-hmm. The year goes by. Um, I graduate high school. It's my 17th birthday. And so on my 17th birthday, we, we go out on a walk late at night. Um, and I live in like a rural area. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is pretty country. And so we're coming down a hill, you know, in the country area. And at the top of this hill, there's a cop car that starts flashing around its lights like it's looking for somebody. And so me and my mm. friends start running. And so we're running back to my family's house. And while we're running, one of my friends yells out, it's all right, Isaac's the only one that's going to get in trouble. <gasps> and that was it. Whoa. That was the moment. That was the moment. Yes. Whoa. You were like, Arr! Yeah. Wait a minute. That that was it. Mm. So I spent this whole year wrestling with these really hard, like racism. I and I'm, I'll be honest. I was you know living my life thinking maybe this is not real. Like maybe racism mm. is not real. Maybe this wow. is all something. You know maybe there's a reason why I didn't know about this. And then it was mm. that it was that comment. It clicked it. It, it. it was so evident to me that they knew something that that I didn't. They knew that I was different. They knew I was going to be treated different. And, and mm. they they had this understanding of this concept that I had been hidden from. And, and that, mm. and even though I don't think it was intentional of my parents, you know, I think in their mind, they were probably trying to protect me. It yeah. felt very much so like it was a very intentional, like hiding of the truth. Mm. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I go into college with that mentality. Like, so I guess everybody is just, around me knowing that police are going to treat me different or that life's going to treat me different. And honestly, the minute I get on to college is when I start experiencing like blatant racism. Mm. And so it's like so, it's crazy. It's just like a snap and then right into the, into the deep end. Wow. Yeah. So what do you wish your parents would have done differently that would have helped prepare yeah. you for that? Yeah. I think in, in, you know, in my parents defense, you know, so 2000s were were the color colorblind era is kind of what I call it. Mm. It wasn't quite an, an era, but it was definitely like a really long season of time where the answer to racial issues was colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And so my parents and like my elementary days were caught right in that. And so my parents embraced that style and they just ran with it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I honestly just wish that that wouldn't have been the case I wish that they Mm would have embraced the fact that like I was a black person and that because I was a black person I was going to have a different experience in America 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think that it goes along with the fact that, like, they didn't have a community. Like, mm-hmm. there, wasn't, there wasn't Black people around to tell them, hey, like, you should probably have this conversation with your son. You know, he's mm-hmm. about to get his driver's license. You know, you mm. should probably have this conversation with your son. He's about to go to college. All of his friends aren't going to be white anymore. And they're not going to yeah. know that you're his parents. You know, I think that's really the number one thing that protected me. I'm sure that my parents shielded me from so much racism just because mm-hmm. of the fact that they were my parents. And I think it, yeah. my parents would even say that. You know, I think my parents were were so loving and so protective that they didn't want me mm-hmm. to experience enough of it. But in the meantime, there was no way for that to be a long-term thing. There yeah. was no way for me to go out into the adult world away from them and not experience racism. Now doing the consulting, if you were consulting them, what advice would you give them? I would say it's education, one. Like you need to you need to be in it. You need, you know, we have so many resources now. We didn't have I will say we don't ha- we didn't have as many like, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So you have yeah. a ton of resources right now that are at your disposal. One. You also have just so many things that are happening culturally. It's again mm-hmm. like you can learn everything in the books. And most people nowadays, you know, the, the, the white liberal would know all the things to say, but mm-hmm. could still live in a community that wasn't conducive to change, could still mm-hmm. live in an all white, you know, community where they just exchange woke facts, but they're not ever like in with people of color. Like that's not a solution either. Like we mm-hmm. have to live in community. And so I, yeah. I always do study let's talk about these let's talk about what is hard for you to understand what is easy Mm -hmm. how do we kind of you know some of these books that they they use some language that's hard like let's break some things down I usually try to you know take like white supremacy um and words like that and I don't I don't use words like white supremacy or racist a ton just because I think Mm -hmm. that they're trigger words I say the exact same thing without using those words Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I, what, for example, like instead of racist, I would say something like ignorant or biased. And then I would be like, so here's mm. the, because it, even though racist is a little bit more intense, you have to also mm-hmm. be ignorant and biased to be racist and mm-hmm. like white supremacy. <laughs> yeah. Like white supremacy, you know, I would say, well, you have to understand, like when you look at, you know, most of the CEOs, what do you see when you look at most of the wealth in the world? What do you see? What's the mm-hmm. racial demographic of all these things? Who owns the most property in America? Does this not seem like kind of a white monopoly? And mm-hmm. so it kind of breaks these concepts down and kind of makes them like easier to like chew. So that mm-hmm. way, when they get to the word white supremacy, they're already understanding, oh, they're saying this because if you look at white flight and you look at wealth and you look at banking and you look at all these things, Really, all we have is what we have is a majority white. And until mm-hmm. recently, you know, it was basically entirely white. You know what I mean? The last 10 years have, you know, we've had, we have more successful black people and people of color than ever. But, you know, most adults today, they remember a world where there was no black people mm-hmm. that were really in positions of power. And I remember on the panel discussion, you had mentioned that you felt that you came out twice. Yeah. So how was that? And 
like now you're trying to figure out two they're both a part of you but they're both yeah two different things that you're you're wrestling with or having to figure out absolutely so what helped you get to the point where you felt that freedom to come out yeah so you know the race so i feel like coming out as a like activist or as a black person happened you know my my between my freshman and sophomore year of college mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I started posting about racism and I got mm. all this backlash. I got tons of backlash. Church wow. church parents calling my parents, asking what's going on. Uh, tons of people mm. I grew up with acting super weird. People I was in college with asking me questions like, when did you... <laughs> people I in college asked me like, when did I turn black? People asked me legitimate questions wow. like that. Wow. Like, You're like, yeah. I've been black. I was like, dude, <laughs> what is happening? And so um, I remember that time as like that. Wait, let's just kind of back that up <laughs> yeah. because that is like yeah. a weird, you know, and it just shows how in order for people. And I think all groups of people do this, yeah. but in order to accept you, they have to deny who you are mm-hmm. in order to accept you into their group. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that's what what a lot of people probably did to you they just kind of denied that and they were like oh he's not like them he's like one of us exactly and those are those were some of the comments too like when did you become like one of those black people like people said all these kinds of things to me throughout my whole sophomore fall semester because it was Mm -hmm. the first time that I was talking about race so so um so passionately um, mm-hmm. not to mention this was also the Donald Trump election year. So it was just a tense year. Everybody was <laughs> suffering. Um, yeah. And so, and it's only getting worse. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so I think for me, that felt like, like a coming, coming out as black. It was like, I had to tell everybody I grew up around that, Hey, like I am a black person, please stop doing racist stuff. Like mm. that's what it felt like it had to be. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ended up dropping out of that college and moving to Georgia and doing a bunch of like inner city work. Um, And I was living in Atlanta for a little while. Um, So, yeah. How did we not run into each other? I know. It's my favorite city. (laughs) Seriously. I love Atlanta. Mine too. Yeah. Mine too. And then, you know, coming out uh, as a queer person next was almost like this next big battle. Mm. You know, it was kind of like. What do you think was harder? Oh. I think in the long run, race was probably harder. Wow. If I'm being honest, just because, you know, I laid some groundwork when I, when I started talking about race and getting more progressive, Mm -hmm. like there was some, we had to come over so many hills there. My family was already kind of like picking up on some of these, like, oh, like black people, gay people, all these people, they aren't different than us. They're just normal people. Like, people mm-hmm. are allowed to have different views. People are allowed to have liberal views. Mm-hmm. And so even though it was difficult, and I won't, it was definitely difficult, I would say that it was much easier because it was more so, like, I was also older too, but it was, all, it was more so, like, okay, like, there's almost nothing we can do about this. Like, mm-hmm. I think when I started talking about race, there was this idea that they could just shut it down like really and see i would think it would be the opposite because i i feel like out of people's ignorance they feel Mm -hmm. like when it comes to sexuality that can be changed but when it comes to race like you cannot change 
the your skin color, right. your feature, you know, let's like yeah. surgically you do that. But that's how you were born. Yeah. So that's very interesting. And I don't think it was about the color of my skin. I think it was about my thought pattern. I think that they thought wow. they thought that like they could reel the reins back in to like the liberal stuff. Like they were like I think they were and I don't know this for sure, it's a question for them, but I feel like from from all the conversations that we had, I felt mm-hmm. like they were trying to tone me down mm-hmm. as a black person and talking about race. And when I came out of the closet as a queer person, they were just concerned in other areas, you know? I think mm-hmm. they were scared of the idea of me bringing home a man, just like all these different issues that they felt like they had, they couldn't even control, um, mm. you know? Because my, I will mm-hmm. admit that my parents do an amazing job of, of trying to be supportive. And, mm-hmm. and like, my parents are not the kind of parents that are going to, like, disband somebody for being gay or for being um, more liberal than they are. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they do a great job of, like, doing their best to understand and, like, figure out how we're going to all kind of continue to be one big family. But, you know both of those things went very differently, I would say. Well, and on the panel discussion, I loved when you talked about your first HBCU experience. Yeah. Exactly, yes. (laughs) That's a historically Black college and university. So if you could just share that with everyone, because I loved it. Absolutely, yes. So my experience, so just to give some context, the summer after my freshman year of college, a mentor of mine got me uh, a job at a camp in Roberta, Georgia for inner city youth. And so it's this camp that nonprofits from around Georgia bring kids, inner city kids out to this country um, area. And so I was a counselor. And while I was there, um, I met this guy named Anthony who went to Morehouse College. And so after we left for the summer, Anthony, um, he invited me to come to Morehouse for homecoming. Mm-hmm. To give even more context, I went to a Bible college um, a small Bible <laughs> college, um, and I, you know, wasn't exposed. You had no yeah. idea. Bless your heart. Exactly. I wasn't exposed. <laughs> I wasn't exposed to that many black people, so I didn't know anything about what a black what a black college even looked like, to be honest. And so mm-hmm. I'm, you know, fall comes around and homecoming is about to come up, and about a week beforehand, I decide that I'm actually going to go. So I have a white minivan. Um, and I <laughs> and I wake up at five thirty in the morning one day, and I drive for a whole day, eleven hours to Morehouse College. Whoa! Yeah, eleven wow. hour, eleven hour road trip. It was <laughs> it was a fun time. <laughs> um, but I wake up and I'm like, I'm gonna do this. Uh, not to mention, mm-hmm. I had a, I had a girlfriend, um, the first black girl I dated, that also lived in Atlanta. So it was like a two for one. It was like, all right, cool. Oh, wow. We're gonna do this. Like I'm gonna, gonna see Bay. Gotta get to see Bay. Go to homecoming. <laughs> you know, we're gonna knock this out. And so, uh, you know, I finally get to Morehouse College, and within a couple of minutes, they're like, "Hey, hey, get. We're gonna get back in the car. And we're gonna go to this party." I have no clue what I'm getting into. I <laughs> I've been to parties. The only parties I had been to were like with other white homeschoolers because I was homeschooled. So, like, mm-hmm. I had never been to a party party. So we pull up to a frat row at Georgia Tech. And I'm already, yeah. <laughs> I'm already, I'm already, like, surprised. Like, it's like, it's like I'm at Disney World. 
I'm like <laughs> looking around like so this is what other you're college, probably yeah. over <laughs> sensory you're yeah. like about to explode yeah we're going like in and out of like frat houses and sororities like you guys just walking now and they're like yeah dude it's because it, it's also <laughs> Halloween weekend so everybody's dressed up too like there's too much going on in my like 18 year old head <laughs> and then and so we go to bed late that night and we wake up for tailgate um for Morehouse Homecoming and and I it, I remember we we went to tailgate and it was so many black people I called it like the black sea <laughs> I had just never been around so many black people before like that like there was never even a chance for me around be around this many black people and so the mm-hmm. whole day I'm like trying to figure out am I fitting in like I look like yeah. everybody else around me but the whole day I'm literally just like do I even like belong here um, um not to mention like I'd never been to a homecoming other than a bible college homecoming mm-hmm. and a bible college well, and I, I think for really different yeah like transracial adoptees I think especially when we haven't had a lot of exposure mm-hmm. we go through that imposter syndrome absolutely whenever we're around like our race of people yes no then that is no that's a for sure i think i've never met a transracial adoptee that didn't feel that way because it's hard not to it's really hard not to um because there are just little things that black families kind of do kind of like as traditions that we missed Mm -hmm. out on like Mm -hmm. i still don't know how to play spades (laughs) <laughs> it's too em- <laughs> at this point it's too embarrassing to ask oh <laughs> so, <laughs> no you should ask and so, <laughs> and so yeah like there, there are little things like that that like mm-hmm. not every black person but most black families like they know how to do that or somebody yeah. in their family teaches them like one of their aunts or uncles like teaches them um, yeah and so just like little things like that I think also make transracial adoptees feel self-conscious in moments um, mm-hmm. And I think one thing that was significant about that Morehouse trip and that day at tailgate was the different types of black people that I met. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, you know, I met black people that were very similar to me that grew up in black households. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I also was experiencing very like what they might call traditionally black people from inner city environments, but they were also probably smarter than I was. Mm-hmm. And that's not a concept that was taught to me. When, when we thought about people that talked a certain way, the idea was that they weren't intelligent. But I think one of the most beautiful things about HBCU culture is that it takes all different types of people of color and mm-hmm. puts them in an environment and they're all given the same education. They all had to get in the same way. And, mm-hmm. and they're all very smart. It shows that intelligence doesn't have to look one way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a huge, that's a huge disservice that the white community does to itself. It's mm. to say that intelligence has to look like clear spoken words or a certain, like a button up shirt and a polo. Like mm-hmm. it just, intelligence doesn't look one way. And so since intelligent was taught to me as like these book smart, nerdy people who had very mm. distinct language and were, you know, fantastic at speaking, for me to meet somebody who didn't have that kind of dialect um, that was, you know, on honor roll at Morehouse, to be mm-hmm. honest, my mind was kind of just like exploding, like, maybe mm. these things aren't true. Mm. And so I, yeah. I'm really thankful that I had that experience so young. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that is, 
that is a disservice that I think is done to people of color time and yeah. time again. Time well, and, and it shows again. that they're, they're not monolithic. And I, yeah. I think too, the good thing for you was it allowed you to see that you have a space where you mm-hmm. do fit, Absolutely. you know, versus if you just would have been with one group of people, then maybe you would have questioned, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't think I do. So now what, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I am glad too, that you had that experience at a yeah. young age. So you could kind of see that, you know, there's space for, for all types of people. Exactly. Because, you know, especially with black people, they're just not monolithic, but as like society and the media tries to portray them to be. So, absolutely. Uh, Well, so on the flip side, when black people hear that you were adopted and by white people and Mm -hmm. raised kind of the way that you were, what is their response? Uh, Lots of questions. You know, it was it. (laughs) It's kind of funny. I I did a talk. (laughs) I did a talk. I guess it would have been last year. Sorry. 2020 has felt like three years. So I keep forgetting that 2019 (laughs) was just last year. Um, Uh, But. Just last year, I did a talk uh, at a local college, and, and mm-hmm. it was the Alphas. So um, the Alphas okay. that invited me to come and give a presentation during their Alpha okay. Week. And nice. it was an all-Black. It was the first time, actually, that I ever spoke to an almost entirely Black um, audience. And wow. I remember that the reaction was honestly not necessarily that much different than white people's, as in, like, there was a there was like a forty minute Q and A, like people like black people just had a lot of questions about how white people were, you know, allowed to do that. Why were white people allowed to adopt black people? What was the experience like for me? Mm-hmm. How do you talk to your family about race? You know, kind of like flip side questions maybe. Mm. You know, instead of asking questions about like race and racism and culture, mm-hmm. they were asking, well, how do you even talk to your family about race and racism and culture and how do you do Mm -hmm. this work? Um, Mm -hmm. And like, how do you feel as a black person and Mm -hmm. telling, telling these kinds of stories like about Morehouse and like questions like, how do I feel about being a black person? And Mm -hmm. I thought it was really super cool. I actually, I honestly wish I spoke in front of black crowds more because I think it's like a really cool experience to have this like dialect, like, because I do activacy work and I've done activacy work now for five or six years. And Mm -hmm. so you know, and I, and I run an activacy org in Lancaster. So, you know, I, I also have like a really good understanding of racism and culture, especially now. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also very interesting for black people to see somebody in my position who was raised by white people. Um, what is a question or answer that they were most intrigued by? So I, you know, the work that I do is very unique, maybe not to adoptees, but outside of the adoption realm, People are always mm-hmm. interested in the fact that, like, I am trying to do racial work specifically with people that are adopting children. Um, mm-hmm. And that I have conversations about race, like, in a very particular niche. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the question is always, like, you know, because I always tell Black people, do, do almost any other form of activacy work other than trying to have in-depth conversations with white people about racism if you're not an extremely patient and empathetic person because it is the most exhaust it's one of the most exhausting forms of activacy work i think um mm. and so i i think the the most impactful part of that talk was when they asked me 
you know, how do you do this? And mm-hmm. I said, mm-hmm. I, and I said, it's, it's because I believe I was called to do it. Like, I believe that my story was mm-hmm. not like this big accident. And, yeah. And because I was raised in a white world, I have such a deep understanding of how white people think. You know, I was mm. one of the first black people allowed in my grandparents' house. You know, I've dealt, my extended family is not very progressive. Wow. I've had to have mm. these conversations across the board from extended family to, um, you know, I guess direct family, not blood family, <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. direct family. Um, and so I say, I developed this understanding of how to pull empathy out of people and how to mm. get people to where they can actually receive it that mm-hmm. that's why I do this is because I, I, I can feel it because I understand them. I understand. So how, how so do well. you do that? Cause I, that is hard. Yeah. It's very like, hard. Um, well, from two standpoints, I think we always like empathy is this new buzzword that mm-hmm. people always talk about, but it's harder than people think Absolutely. for other people to put themselves in other people's shoes that they have zero idea about. Mm-hmm. And to just, you know, with, with white people in particular, you know, they, they've lived in this land of privilege for so long and, and not having to have to be exposed to other things that people are going through. So it's like, those are two really hard things to kind of overcome. So how do you do that? I'd say it's two things. One of them is patience mm-hmm. because you, there, you have to have such an extreme level of patience to hear ignorance time and time again. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and my, work is, my work is 100% based on the fact that you're going to ask me ignorant questions. Mm-hmm. I want that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a deep level of patience. Mm-hmm. But then I'd say even bigger than that, mm-hmm. it's listening. Mm. what people don't do when they're talking about social justice things when they have an agenda is they don't listen a hundred percent you you meet with somebody racist and you're going there to convince them to change you're not listening to why they think the way they think Mm. and the truth is if you're not listening there's nothing you can do if you take any social issue and you try to attack the surface of it all you're doing is taking up a flower but you're not taking up its roots. Mm. You have to listen to people to actually understand where they're coming from. And you may not like it or agree with it, but if you don't listen and you're not in that moment with that person, they're not going to change. Mm -hmm. They're not going to see you or hear you or listen to you because people don't often listen to people that don't listen to them. Mm. And so I show up in those moments whole. And it's hard for sure, requires a level of patience but i listen to how people develop their own logic mm. you know if if this is how you feel about black lives matter i want to i want to do the whole gambit mm-hmm. how did you get here what have you been reading mm-hmm. how can how can i hear this what's your upbringing what's your story mm-hmm. you know a lot of the things that we believe have roots that are deeper than us mm-hmm. like have roots that are oh yeah you know, well my parents did this and that and they yes. did this and that and they took us this and this and so you know since I grew up in the church I you know subscribe to this and you know and without that content context you're, you're expecting somebody to change in a conversation 
where you haven't even gone in depth with them about the thing that makes them them. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. And we, and you know, we live in this very fast world. Mm-hmm. We live in, we live in this buzzword um, woke culture that kind of seems to think that they could, they should be able to change people with an Instagram story mm. or with, with, you know, you know, a good article. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that like 99, 98% of the people who have like a system in a, in a belief system, they're not going to read an article and necessarily change overnight. Right. You know what I mean? There has to be a, a Oh, yeah, level. this is like years yeah, of exactly. the, what they've been exposed to, what their yeah. biases have been formed and their ideas mm-hmm. that they have. That's a lot to exactly. overcome for it's anybody, whether they're white, black, whatever, you know, race. You gotta, I think, so, you know, I'm a big proponent of like thinking about it on the flip side. If I was going to convince somebody who grew up in a black, a very liberal black home, to be a conservative, that's not one article. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think about it on the I, I think about it on the flip side. So yeah. you can't attack it. Mm-hmm. I you know, I like I like doing things that I think are going to be long term impactful. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and so the whole idea behind editor consulting and, and behind my work in race mm-hmm. has been to attack roots, not to mm. attack surfaces. I'm not going to lie. I don't care about Donald Trump as much mm-hmm. because I know Donald Trump is the surface of a much deeper issue in America. Mm-hmm. So I don't sit around and talk about how much I hate Donald Trump. I talk about how much I hate the system that created Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's the mentality behind my work at Editor Consulting. I want people to be super real with me. I'm going to be super real with them. Mm-hmm. And, and I, want, I want their worst mm-hmm. because until, until it's all out on the table, I don't think there's much chance that we're talking about long-term change. You might get it in theory, but you're not going to get it in practice until we're really at that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love what you said, attack roots and not surface, not the surface. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. So have you had to tell a family mm, when it comes to transracial adoption? I don't think you're ready for that. Not right now. Mm-hmm. I haven't directly. So usually adoption. So how usually how this process goes is adoption agencies have a certain quota mm-hmm. of cultural trainings that they have to do, and so a lot of adoption agencies will bring me in to do it. Mm. And so at the end of that, basically the adoption agencies will give them kind of like, not like homework, but like an assessment. Mm-hmm. Mm. So post my talk, a lot of adoption agencies like have them do kind of like a, what did you learn? How do you feel about these concepts? I forget what the, I wish I could find, I don't think I'm going to find it in time. I wish I would have already had it, but there is one, there is a test that's already out there that a lot of adoption agencies use to assess whether people are ready for transracial adoption. And so they go through something like that afterwards and sometimes social workers will meet with me afterwards mm-hmm. to ask me about if I noticed anything or if there's any families that I would suggest against it. Mm-hmm. And there have been times where I've been like, it seems like, you know, that person might just need a little bit more conversations and, and a little bit more work in this area before I think it would be a good choice. Mm-hmm. But I've never, you know, because I'm not a social worker, I can't necessarily tell a family 
like, hey, you should definitely not transracially adopt because I don't necessarily <laughs> have that power. Mm-hmm. But social workers are social workers who work with agencies are usually pretty trusting of, you know, you know, my input. Um, and I've I've been thankful to like be a part of those conversations with certain families. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, some of it is some of it is like at the end of the day, we're, we're battling two issues. We're battling, okay, do we want children to be adopted? Mm-hmm. Yes. We don't want children sitting in a bad system. Mm-hmm. But we also don't want them going into homes that are going to be racist. Right. And so, you know, we, I think like for, for a lot of the adoption agencies and, and even me, that's kind of where we sit all the time is like, okay, how do we, how do we prepare families best without, without honestly leaving a bunch of kids in the system? Mm, yeah. You know, that's why I decided to do this work mm-hmm. is because the alternative, the alternative to transracial adoption is no adoption because mm-hmm. the majority of people who adopt are white. Mm-hmm. So if we said white people can't adopt children of a different race, then we have a ton of kids that are sitting in the system probably for most of their probably for most of their, you know, elementary, high school, you know, young, young life, Mm -hmm. just because there's not enough black people that, or people of color that can't even financially adopt, Mm -hmm. especially from private agencies who charge like an arm and a leg. Well, you know what, honestly, I feel like if we were a more evolved society where we did just look at the content of people's characters and not judge them off of race and, we were more evolved from that perspective that it wouldn't transracial adoptions wouldn't be that big of an issue. But because Mm -hmm. like when we're in our homes, like we feel safe, protected, everything's fine. Like it's normal for us until we go out into the world. And then they remind us that it's not, or we're not because of how we look or whatever the case may be. And so it's, It's not, you know, some of it is the preparation for the parents, but I think, too, it's just that preparation for society, which I think whether you're like a transracial adoption type situation or just a person of color, like those are the the considerations you have to have in the society that we live in currently. And yeah, it's it's crazy to me. It, it, and and it's because, and I think it's because, you know, the world that we're living in now, one, is like so extremely progressive compared to what the world has looked like for the past, since the founding of America. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the, the age of the George Floyd video going viral and the protests that happened around the country, you know, they th- those protests were the biggest to ever happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was never a movement that happened in all 50 states. The civil rights movement was huge, but there wasn't one thing in that period that ignited protest in literally every state. Yeah. And so we're living in one of, we're living in like the biggest civil rights movement thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also changing the landscape of America while we do that. And so now more than ever, it's almost impossible. You would think it's impossible. But we often forget that outside of cities in rural areas, those people are living in their own world. Yeah. So we, you, 
you can go to every state and you find the rural area, they're living in their own world. They they don't care about the Black Lives Matter stuff. They don't care about any of this. Mm-hmm. And so to one to one degree, I'm like, okay, we're moving, but I, I, I don't necessarily know how far we move until we're until we're working towards all of the change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I will, you know, I always jokingly say, I'm I'm not under the mindset that there's a group of people that can't change. I don't mm-hmm. I don't live I don't live in a world where I think that there are white people that are too racist to mm-hmm. understand um, racial bias or injustice. You can call me naive, but I don't live there. Mm-hmm. So that's my ideal target. That's exactly where I want to be. That's exactly who I want to sit with. And so, you know, in my mind, you know, my goal is always going to be how do I sit down? How do I humanize black people? How do I humanize injustice mm-hmm. to the most ignorant, the most conservative, the most, I don't know what radical right would be, but the mm-hmm. most radical right communities, how do I talk about these issues in ways that gets them to humanize these situations? Mm. Because at the end of the day, when we see things like George Floyd or, you know, Terrence Crutcher or Tamir Rice, when we see, when we see people getting murdered by police in general, that's not something that should pull us onto two different sides. Not even from a, not even from a race standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like, forget the race standpoint. We should be very concerned that anybody is dying at mm. the hands of people who are here to protect us. Yeah, it's a humanity issue. It's a humanity issue. Mm-hmm. And so we're also, I think, kind of missing the point sometimes when we talk about these things. That, like, if we were to humanize some of these things, mm-hmm. the conversation about race would come a lot easier. Mm-hmm. If we stop glorifying the police and we have honest moments about, like, what do we actually want from safety and law enforcement, then when you get into the fact that Black people and Latino people are killed at a disproportionate rate by police, that conversation is not as hard anymore because you just took the police off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it is... It's a long game, you know, we have to do it kind of step by step and it's hard and it's long, um, but I think it's possible. Well, I am so glad you are doing the work, the hard work, and I love your what you're doing with your consulting and your activism work. And if you could just share with everyone how they could stay connected with you. Absolutely. Uh, Isaacetter.com is a great place. Uh, it's E-E, uh, it's I-S-A-A-C-E-T-T-E-R.com. Instagram, Isaac underscore Etter. Um, Etter Consulting, Etter underscore Consulting. Is that on Instagram? Um, Facebook, all, all the things. If you just search my name, honestly, it comes up. Um, <laughs> all the things. At least I hope so. All <laughs> the things, all the social medias. And yeah, please connect. Please reach out. I love having conversations. So hopefully we can do some of those. Yeah. And and thank you for having me. Of course. And before you go, I ask all of my guests to kind of share a too much soul moment that you've had recently that gives you all the feel goods. So just something positive you've experienced recently. Well, I don't, I don't think I talked about this on the panel, but I'm having, I'm having a child in (gasps) a month and a half. No. Yes. So I am a dad to be. Oh um, we gosh, have we have a couple weeks left. I know it's super crazy. <gasps> um, and so 
you know, that's exciting. That's super exciting. Absolutely. Um, um, there, there's baby fields all around. Wow. Um, uh, the due date is October 20th. So wow. um, it's, it's steadily approaching. And uh, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm excited to be a dad. I'm excited to go on this journey. Oh, um, my gosh. And so, yes, things are going to be beautiful. Well, so let me ask you uh, very quickly. Yeah. Having a child, what is the one thing that you really want to teach your child that maybe you didn't get or that you feel is mm-hmm. the most important for them to get being in this world? That's such a great question. Uh, wow. Um, I'd say listening is definitely one of them. You know, that's something, you know, I think it's something that's so missed. I think we can't oh, undervalue 100%. listening. Yeah. And, and as young people, especially, you know, they're not, they're, they're some of the worst listeners. And that's just, <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Um, young people are some of the worst listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Well, because they love, just want to be heard. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it's very, you know, it's not, you know, it's very normal. But I would I would love I would love to raise a child that's, you know, better than me at listening and loving. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's my ideal goal is like can I raise listening a child, and loving. Can I raise a child that's way better than even than even I could achieve to at listening and loving because they were raised on the foundation of it. You know what I mean? I, you know, my, I think my parents raised me on so many amazing ideals. Um, and I think they, they put so many amazing characteristics in me. Uh, but again, we never talked about hard things. Like I never had conversations about listening and learning to people that were different than you. Mm. And so I'd love to raise a child that, that was constantly um, being taught how to listen to people that are different than you and love them well. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just that be such a foundation of what they were brought up on. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I'd say that's like, that's a number one goal for me. I um, love it. Well, you yeah. are a beautiful soul. You just gave me all the feel goods. And Isaac, you <laughs> have you. too much soul. <laughs> Oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man.